Chapter Seventeen of France and England in North America, Part Three: La Salle Discovery of the Great West. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. France and England in North America, Part Three: La Salle Discovery of the Great West by francis parkman jr chapter seventeen the adventures of hennepin it was on the last day of the winter that preceded the invasion of the iroquois that father hennepin with his two companions ecau and duguay had set out from fort crevecoeur to explore the illinois to its mouth it appears from his own later statements as well as from those of tonti that more than this was expected of him, and that La Salle had instructed him to explore not alone the Illinois, but also the upper Mississippi. That he actually did so, there is no reasonable doubt, and could he have contented himself with telling the truth, his name would have stood high as a bold and vigorous discoverer but his vicious attempts to malign his commander and plunder him of his laurels have wrapped his genuine merit in a cloud hennepin's first book was published soon after his return from his travels and while la salle was still alive in it he relates the accomplishment of the instructions given him without the smallest intimation that he did more Fourteen years after, when La Salle was dead, he published another edition of his travels, in which he advanced a new and surprising pretension. Reasons connected with his personal safety, he declares, before compelled him to remain silent, but a time at length had come when the truth must be revealed, and he proceeds to affirm that, before ascending the Mississippi, he, with his two men, explored its whole course from the Illinois to the sea, thus anticipating the discovery which forms the crowning laurel of La Salle. I am resolved, he says, to make known here to the whole world the mystery of this discovery, which I have hitherto concealed, that I might not offend the Sieur de La Salle, who wished to keep all the glory and all the knowledge of it to himself. It is for this that he sacrificed many persons whose lives he exposed to prevent them from making known what they had seen, and thereby crossing his secret plans. I was certain that if I went down the Mississippi, he would not fail to traduce me to my superiors for not taking the northern route, which I was to have followed in accordance with his desire, and the plan we had made together. But I saw myself on the point of dying of hunger, and knew not what to do, because the two men who were with me threatened openly to leave me in the night, and carry off the canoe and everything in it, if I prevented them from going down the river to the nations below." Finding myself in this dilemma, I thought that I ought not to hesitate, and that I ought to prefer my own safety to the violent passion which possessed the Sieur de la Salle of enjoying alone the glory of this discovery. The two men, seeing that I had made up my mind to follow them, promised me entire fidelity, so, after we had shaken hands together as a mutual pledge, we set out on our voyage." He then proceeds to recount at length the particulars of his alleged exploration. The story was distrusted from the first. 
Why had he not told it before? An excess of modesty, a lack of self-assertion, or a too sensitive reluctance to wound the susceptibilities of others, had never been found among his foibles. Yet some, perhaps, might have believed him, had he not, in the first edition of his book, gratuitously and distinctly declared that he did not make the voyage in question. We had some designs, he says, of going down the river Colbert, Mississippi, as far as its mouth, but the tribes that took us prisoners gave us no time to navigate this river both up and down. In declaring to the world the achievement which he had so long concealed and so explicitly denied, the worthy missionary found himself in serious embarrassment. In his first book he had stated that on the 12th of March he left the mouth of the Illinois on his way northward, and that on the eleventh of april he was captured by the sioux near the mouth of the wisconsin five hundred miles above this would give him only a month to make his alleged canoe voyage from the illinois to the gulf of mexico and again upward to the place of his capture a distance of three thousand two hundred and sixty miles with his means of transportation three months would have been insufficient he saw the difficulty, but on the other hand, he saw that he could not greatly change either date without confusing the parts of his narrative which preceded and which followed. In this perplexity he chose a middle course, which only involved him in additional contradictions. Having, as he affirms, gone down to the gulf and returned to the mouth of the Illinois, he set out thence to explore the river above, and he assigns the twenty-fourth of April as the date of this departure. This gives him forty-three days for his voyage to the mouth of the river and back. Looking further, we find that having left the Illinois on the twenty-fourth, he paddled his canoe two hundred leagues northward, and was then captured by the Sioux on the twelfth of the same month. In short, he ensnares himself in a hopeless confusion of dates, here, one would think, is sufficient reason for rejecting his story, and yet the general truth of the descriptions, and a certain verisimilitude which marks it, might easily deceive a careless reader, and perplex a critical one. These, however, are easily explained. Six years before Hennepin published his pretended discovery, his brother Friar, Father Chrétien Leclerc, published an account of the Recollet missions among the Indians, under the title of Etablissement de la Foi. This book, offensive to the Jesuits, is said to have been suppressed by order of government, but a few copies fortunately survive. One of these is now before me. It contains the journal of Father Zenob Mambre, on his descent of the Mississippi in 1681, in company with La Salle. The slightest comparison of his narrative with that of Enepin is sufficient to show that the latter framed his own story out of incidents and descriptions furnished by his brother missionary, often using his very words and sometimes copying entire pages, with no other alterations than such as were necessary to make himself, instead of La Salle and his companions, the hero of the exploit. The records of literary piracy may be searched in vain for an act of depredation more recklessly impudent. Such being the case, what faith can we put in the rest of Hennepin's story? 
Fortunately, there are tests by which the earlier parts of his book can be tried, and on the whole they square exceedingly well with contemporary records of undoubted authenticity. Bating his exaggerations respecting the falls of Niagara, his local descriptions and even his estimates of distance are generally accurate. He constantly, it is true, magnifies his own acts and thrusts himself forward as one of the chiefs of an enterprise to the cost of which he had contributed nothing, and to which he was merely an appendage. And yet, till he reaches the Mississippi, there can be no doubt that in the main he tells the truth. As for his ascent of that river to the country of the Sioux, the general statement is fully confirmed by La Salle, Tonti, and other contemporary writers. For the details of the journey we must rest on Hennepin alone, whose account of the country and of the peculiar traits of its Indian occupants afford, as far as they go, good evidence of truth. Indeed, this part of his narrative could only have been written by one well versed in the savage life of this northwestern region. Trusting, then, to his own guidance in the absence of better, let us follow in the wake of his adventurous canoe. It was deeply laden with goods belonging to La Salle, and meant by him as presents to Indians on the way, though the travellers, it appears, proposed to use them in trading on their own account. The friar was still wrapped in his grey capote and hood, shod with sandals, and decorated with the cord of St. Francis. As for his two companions, Acao and Duguay, it is tolerably clear that the former was the real leader of the party, though Hennepin, after his custom, thrusts himself into the foremost place. Both were somewhat above the station of ordinary hired hands, and Duguay had an uncle who was an ecclesiastic of good credit at Amiens, his native place. In the forest that overhung the river, the buds were feebly swelling with advancing spring. There was game enough. They killed buffalo, deer, beavers, wild turkeys, and now and then a bear swimming in the river. With these, and the fish which they caught in abundance, they fared sumptuously, though it was the season of Lent. They were exemplary, however, at their devotions. Hennepin said prayers at morning and night, and the Angelus at noon, adding a petition to St. Anthony of Padua that he would save them from the peril that beset their way. In truth there was a lion in the path. The ferocious character of the Sioux, or Dakota, who occupied the region of the upper Mississippi, was already known to the French, and Hennepin, with excellent reason, prayed that it might be his fortune to meet them, not by night, but by day. On the 11th or 12th of April they stopped in the afternoon to repair their canoe, and Hennepin busied himself in daubing it with pitch while the others cooked a turkey. Suddenly a fleet of Sioux canoes swept into sight, bearing a war-party of a hundred and twenty naked savages, who, on seeing the travellers, raised a hideous clamour, and, some leaping ashore and others into the water, they surrounded the astonished Frenchmen in an instant. Hennepin held out the peace-pipe, but one of them snatched it from him. Next he hastened to proffer a gift of Martinique tobacco, which was better received. Some of the old warriors repeated the name Miamiha, 
giving him to understand that they were a war party on the way to attack the Miamis, on which Hennepin, with the help of signs and of marks which he drew on the sand with a stick, explained that the Miamis had gone across the Mississippi beyond their reach. Hereupon he says that three or four old men placed their hands on his head and began a dismal wailing, while he, with his handkerchief, wiped away their tears, in order to evince sympathy with their affliction, from whatever cause arising. Notwithstanding this demonstration of tenderness, they refused to smoke with him in his peace-pipe, and forced him and his companions to embark and paddle across the river, while they all followed behind, uttering yells and howlings which froze the missionary's blood. On reaching the father's side, they made their campfires and allowed their prisoners to do the same. Akau and Duguay slung their kettle, while Hannepin, to propitiate the Sioux, carried to them two turkeys, of which there were several in the canoe. The warriors had seated themselves in a ring to debate on the fate of the Frenchmen, and two chiefs presently explained to the friar by significant signs that it had been resolved that his head should be split with a war-club this produced the effect which was no doubt intended hennepin ran to the canoe and quickly returned with one of the men both loaded with presents which he threw into the midst of the assembly and then bowing his head offered them at the same time a hatchet with which to kill him if they wished to do so his gifts and his submission seemed to appease them. They gave him and his companions a dish of beaver's flesh, but to his great concern they returned his peace-pipe, an act which he interpreted as a sign of danger. That night the Frenchmen slept little, expecting to be murdered before morning. There was, in fact, a great division of opinion among the Sioux. Some were for killing them and taking their goods, while others, eager above all things, that French traders should come among them with the knives, hatchets, and guns of which they had heard the value, contended that it would be impolitic to discourage the trade by putting to death its pioneers. Scarcely had morning dawned on the anxious captives when a young chief, naked and painted from head to foot, appeared before them and asked for the pipe, which the friar gladly gave him. He filled it, smoked it, made the warriors do the same, and having given this hopeful pledge of amity, told the Frenchmen that, since the Miamis were out of reach, the war party would return home, and that they must accompany them. To this Hennepin gladly agreed, having, as he declares, his great work of exploration so much at heart, that he rejoiced in the prospect of achieving it, even in their company. He soon, however, had a foretaste of the affliction in store for him, for when he opened his breviary and began to mutter his morning devotion, his new companions gathered about him with faces that betrayed their superstitious terror, and gave him to understand that his book was a bad spirit, with which he must hold no more converse. They thought, indeed, that he was muttering a charm for their destruction— a cow and duguay conscious of the danger begged the friar to dispense with his devotions lest he and they alike should be tomahawked but hennepin says that his sense of duty rose superior to his fears and that he was resolved to repeat his office at all hazards though not until he had asked pardon of his two friends for thus imperilling their lives 
Fortunately, he presently discovered a device by which his devotion and his prudence were completely reconciled. He ceased the muttering which had alarmed the Indians, and with the breviary open on his knees, sang the service in loud and cheerful tones. As this had no savor of sorcery, and as they now imagined that the book was teaching its owner to sing for their amusement, they conceived a favorable opinion of both alike. These Sioux, it may be observed, were the ancestors of those who committed the horrible but not unprovoked massacres of 1862 in the valley of St. Peter. Hennepin complains bitterly of their treatment of him, which, however, seems to have been tolerably good. Afraid that he would lag behind, as his canoe was heavy and slow, they placed several warriors in it to aid him, and his men in paddling. They kept on their way from morning till night, building huts for their bivouac when it rained, and sleeping on the open ground when the weather was fair, which, says Hennepin, gave us a good opportunity to contemplate the moon and stars. The three Frenchmen took the precaution of sleeping at the side of the young chief, who had been the first to smoke the peace-pipe, and who seemed inclined to befriend them but there was another chief, one Aquipaguetin, a crafty old savage, who, having lost a son in war with the Miamis, was angry that the party had abandoned their expedition, and thus deprived him of his revenge. He therefore kept up a dismal lament through half the night, while other old men, crouching over Hennepin as he lay trying to sleep, stroked him with their hands, and uttered wailings so lugubrious that he was forced to the belief that he had been doomed to death, and that they were charitably bemoaning his fate. One night the captives were, for some reason, unable to bivouac near their protector, and were forced to make their fire at the end of the camp. Here they were soon beset by a crowd of Indians, who told them that Aquipaguetin had at length resolved to tomahawk them. The malcontents were gathered in a knot at a little distance, and Hennepin hastened to appease them by another gift of knives and tobacco. This was but one of the devices of the old chief, to deprive them of their goods without robbing them outright. He had with him the bones of a deceased relative, which he was carrying home, wrapped in skins, prepared with smoke after the Indian fashion, and gaily decorated with bands of dyed porcupine quills. He would summon his warriors, and placing these relics in the midst of the assembly, call on all present to smoke in their honor, after which Hennepin was required to offer a more substantial tribute in the shape of cloth, beads, hatchets, tobacco, and the like, to be laid upon the bundle of bones. The gifts thus acquired were then, in the name of the deceased, distributed among the persons present. On one occasion, Aquipaguetin killed a bear, and invited the chiefs and warriors to feast upon it. They accordingly assembled on a prairie, west of the river, where, after the banquet, they danced a medicine dance. They were all painted from head to foot, with their hair oiled, garnished with red and white feathers, and powdered with the down of birds. In this guise they set their arms akimbo, and fell to stamping with such fury that the hard prairie was dented with the prints of their moccasins, while the chief's son, crying at the top of his throat, gave to each in turn the pipe of war. 
meanwhile the chief himself singing in a loud and rueful voice placed his hands on the heads of the three frenchmen and from time to time interrupted his music to utter a vehement harangue hennepin could not understand the words but his heart sank as the conviction grew strong within him that these ceremonies tended to his destruction it seems however that after all the chief's efforts his party was in the minority the greater part being adverse to either killing or robbing the three strangers every morning at daybreak an old warrior shouted the signal of departure and the recumbent savages leaped up manned their birchen fleet and plied their paddles against the current often without waiting to break their fast sometimes they stopped for a buffalo hunt on the neighboring prairies and there was no lack of provisions they passed lake pepin which hennepin called the lake of tears by reason of the howlings and lamentations here uttered over him by a quipaguetin and nineteen days after his capture landed near the site of st paul the father's sorrows now began in earnest the indians broke his canoe to pieces having first hidden their own among the alder bushes as they belonged to different bands and different villages their mutual jealousy now overcame all their prudence and each proceeded to claim his share of the captives and the booty happily they made an amicable distribution or it would have fared ill with the three frenchmen and each taking his share not forgetting the priestly vestments of hennepin the splendor of which they could not sufficiently admire they set out across the country for their villages which lay towards the north in the neighborhood of lake buad now called Millac. being says hennepin exceedingly tall and active they walked at a prodigious speed insomuch that no european could long keep pace with them though the month of may had begun there were frosts at night and the marshes and ponds were glazed with ice which cut the missionary's legs as he waded through they swam the larger streams and hennepin nearly perished with cold as he emerged from the icy current his two companions who were smaller than he and who could not swim were carried over on the backs of the indians they showed however no little endurance and he declares that he should have dropped by the way but for their support seeing him disposed to lag the indians to spur him on set fire to the dry grass behind him and then taking him by the hands ran forward with him to escape the flames to add to his misery he was nearly famished as they gave him only a small piece of smoked meat once a day though it does not appear that they themselves fared better on the fifth day being by this time in extremity he saw a crowd of squaws and children approaching over the prairie and presently descried the bark lodges of an indian town the goal was reached he was among the homes of the sioux End of chapter seventeen